All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to tell you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We do hope to have Chen on the show sometime in the near future to talk about some of his exciting new stories, um, but hopefully in the next week or two, uh, or sometime in the near future, anyway, we'll get Chen on the show again. Uh, you do need to uh, go to miningstocks.com to sign up for my newsletter, miningstocks.com, and you need to go there if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, put your name on a waiting list, uh, Chen's waiting list, and then at the start of the new calendar quarter, he will be accepting new subscribers. do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the uh, one of the larger, uh, more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, I'd also like to encourage you to send me your questions and comments and criticisms and praises to questions. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is jtaylormedia. We do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, RN Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, and Calinex Resources. Next week, I will be talking to the CEO of RN Resources. Now, this is a stock that I'm very excited about, not only because the company has what I think will be a major gold discovery in Canada, but it also has a management team that has been successful on its first two attempts to build uh, substantial wealth in the ground uh, with gold deposits uh, in, in Mexico and elsewhere. But uh, I, I do hope uh, that you will stick around next week and listen to Sean Wallace because I think it is a very compelling story uh, that I'm eager for you to hear. You know, a growing theme that we've had over the last number of years is a reliance on Chinese growth for global growth. And following the financial crisis of 2008-2009, very rapid economic growth in China was largely contrived. Um, it was a large growth, but it was largely contrived rather than natural. It was stimulated by major uh, government expenditures and, um, you know, government has to say what gets done and what doesn't get done to a much greater extent there than still in the United States. Well, that helped to pull the global economy out of trouble. But since so much of that growth was contrived rather than spontaneous from the markets, uh, you had lots of, uh, well, you had these empty cities and, um, and uh, bridges to nowhere, which is always a phenomenon of government intervention, whether it's in interest rates or whether it's manufacturing shoes or what have you. Well, 
Uh, now, the Chinese propaganda is saying that the economy, while slowing a bit, is still growing at about a 6.9% clip. But there is reason to doubt that growth. Listen now to the following remarks from Mark Faber when he was interviewed yesterday on Bloomberg. Do you think there's an accident waiting to happen here? Well, it depends what an accident is in terms of definition. But I would say this. We have had very heavy capital flight over the last eight, nine months coming out of China. And if I had to bet on someone, the local knowledge or some economy somewhere in the world talking up China and how great it is, I would bet on the locals who are shifting money out of China at the record uh, level at the present time. Secondly, the gross figures that the government are publishing uh, do not match the reality. Say, exports are down, imports are down, uh, industrial production is down, car sales were down, maybe they stabilized for a while, but a lot of indicators are very negative. Railway freight traffic is down 17% year on year. You want to tell me that the economy is growing at 6.9%? It doesn't rhyme. But is it fair to say the economy is barely growing at all? Or is it just not growing at the rate and speed in which we've grown accustomed to? Because there's a big difference. I think uh, many people don't understand that China has a population twice as large as the US and Europe combined. It's not just a country, it's an entire empire. And you can have growth in some sectors of the economy. I have no doubt that some service sectors are growing, but other very important sectors like industrial production isn't growing at the present time. And the way the U.S. had sometimes a recession in California, like in the early 1990s, and other states were growing, you can have in China some provinces growing and others contracting. And so uh, to measure economic growth in a country this large with that many people is very difficult. But say the evidence shows that it's nowhere growing at the same pace it was growing say between 2000 and 2007 and what we have had in China and this investors should realize is a credit bubble of epic proportions I have uh, read economic history I've never seen credit as a percent of the economy growing as fast as in China in the last seven years so Mark makes some very good points there. There is indeed reason to doubt the happy talk coming out of the official Chinese propaganda machinery, just as there is reason to doubt the happy talk coming from the United States economic propaganda. Clearly, there is a slowdown in economic growth in China, and that is impacting commodity prices dramatically to the downside, and it is hurting commodity-producing countries, uh, not to mention U.S. exporters like Caterpillar. But um, some news that came out today... Uh, that really sort of caught my attention uh, was that Iran is joining the BRIC bank. Now, thanks to the abysmal foreign policy, not just from the Obama administration, but from the Bush administration before that, the United States is clearly losing its clout in the Middle East and Europe. 
And as Richard Mayberry has noted, because the United States intrusion into countries around the world, everyone hates the United States. And I think that is increasingly true of even some of our closest allies because the United States is asking Europe to pay a much higher price to launch sanctions against Russia and Iran and other countries and to do whatever it wants other countries to do than the United States is willing to pay or is being asked to pay. So with the entire world heading into, I think, increasingly into a slowdown, possibly a depression, uh, it is increasingly problematic, I believe, for the United States to try to force other countries to follow its dictates. And so we are seeing even our own allies defy the United States order not to join China's economy and become closer to China. Uh, when England joined the Chinese bank, the, a, the development bank known as the AIIB, against the United States' wishes last year, it opened the floodgates for countries around the world to move closer in trade with China. Australia and New Zealand, for example, Canada too, all good uh, close allies of the United States chumming up with China. The developing countries have clearly felt cheated by the, by the IMF, which is, of course, controlled by the United States and England. These are the spoils of World War II. But especially since the U.S. went on the petrodollar, when it backed away from the gold dollar in 1971 and went into the petrodollar, which has been enforced by our military around the world, forcing people to pay for their oil in dollars. And that has provided a... Uh, a bid under the dollar and has allowed the U.S. to print endless amounts of dollars which we've used to reallocate wealth from the countries that produce it to uh, the Western countries, especially the United States. And so the BRICS nations have formed their own bank and banking system to, to step outside of what they consider to be an unfair U.S. dollar system. And what I was so amazed to see from a Zero Hedge article that I saw earlier today is that the BRICS economies have now basically caught up with the United States. Meantime, as the United States, to a great extent, uh, exits from the Middle East, and as Iraq joins Russia, Iran, and Syria in an alliance there. The U.S. is trying to step into the South China Sea to try to use its military influence along with its alliances and the the newly formed Trans-Pacific Partnership to isolate and emasculate China. We are moving into a bipolar world, I'm afraid, and this cannot help the Western economies. But we have, uh, we, we've basically forced China and Russia and other countries that have failed to tote the line with America's military-industrial complex into a closer relationship with each other. And with the global economy in trouble and with a major part of the world seeking to move away from the United States, which has had its way ever since World War II, issuing what amounts to counterfeit currency, the petrodollar, and as the U.S. loses control of the oil markets in the Middle East, and as the U.S. becomes increasingly isolated, that cannot be good news for the United States economy or ultimately the U.S. dollar, I'm afraid. All the more reason from a fundamental point of view, I think, to swap dollars for gold, whether you buy gold outright, hold the bullion, or whether you buy it through gold money, bit gold, or some other uh, process. And we did, uh, again, talk to Roy Sabag of BitGold. I think that is one way that you might consider doing that. Well, today's show I've titled, How Do um, Savers How do Savers Survive in a Negative Interest Rate World? 
John Rubino and Michael Oliver will be with me sent, uh, to talk about these topics today. Now, central bankers uh, are employing economic policies more akin, I would argue, to fascist or econ- uh, communist economics. And so they have so really bastardized the capital markets that savers are increasingly punished. And those who spend recklessly beyond their means are rewarded. I mean, it's an upside-down world that has been created by our Keynesian economists. Now, with the monetary narcotic that the Fed and other central banks have created, the capital markets and indeed the whole global economy now require more and more money creation at a faster and faster rate of speed, causing the global economy to careen towards, uh, I think, a massive implosion. We're seeing uh, prices falling at beggar thy neighbor economics that's uh, akin to the 1930s. Given uh, the world as it's turned upside down state, and the negative interest rates uh, that, that are really symptomatic of this world uh, and this sinful disease, how can honest, hardworking, middle-class folks survive? And we're going to try to get some ideas about that from John Rubino, who will be with us uh, in about uh, 15, 20 minutes. We do have to go to break now, but when we come back, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the latest that uh, Michael Oliver has to say about some very key markets like the equity markets, the debt markets, and the precious metals markets. So we're going to go to a break now, but when we, back, when we come back, I'll be with Michael Oliver, so don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Michael Oliver. And uh, before we talk to Michael, I want to just tell you to go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com to catch up with Michael and, and what he's doing. And also consider subscribing to his excellent newsletter. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back. Always good to have you. I um, I have been shorting the Nasdaq by way of uh, an ETF, namely ProShares Short QQQ symbol PSQ, and over the past three weeks or so, and it has gone against me. Should I bail out and take uh, my nine or ten percent loss now and swallow my pride and move on and get ready for the next bull market, or, or what's your advice? Oh well, I <laughs> Nasdaq is there had to be one, I guess. Uh, you had this roar back up after the August low in most indexes and sectors. And because the NASDAQ has uh, a hefty tech weighting, and because there's several symbols, not a multitude, several strong symbols, especially within the NASDAQ 100 that are heavily weighted, that, that shot up strongly, uh, that helped get the NASDAQ up to nip its high out. Now, that, that is not, I don't think, indicative of a market trend. I think it is a teaser. Uh, there are plenty of times if you go back and look at tops in markets, uh, go back over 50, 100 years, find a monthly chart of the Dow or the S&P, you'll find quite a few times that in a topping process. Remember October of 2007, for example. We peaked in May, had a hard drop into August, and Bernanke printed a new high for us. It took us up into October, took out the high by 1%. And everybody said, oh, boy, we're off to the races, and that was the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, new highs don't impress me. Now, if it were across the board and everything, but it's not. It's extremely narrow. Most sectors are uh, anemic at best uh, or had a nice sharp rally. But when I do my momentum measurements, not, not just looking at the price chart, but, you know, where is price in relation to certain means, certain long-term averages and so forth, and I oscillated and it created a different vista of the market as opposed to the simple price chart, this rally is squarely up against what I think is – major annual momentum resistance, and I suspect the rally is either over or about over, and the the confusion that now exists, namely we we were all stout and strong in early August, and everybody was very weak and scared late August, and now everybody's back to, well, either they're stout and strong or they're confused as hell. (laughs) It's it's a confusing chart when you look at it, I admit that, uh, on a price chart. Sure. But when I go to the momentum action, it looks exactly like it did in October of 2000, which was a strong reachback rally after the top had already occurred in 2000. It closed on the high of the month that month, and by December, you were back pressing the lows. Uh, it happened in 2008. If you recall, when we started out 2008, we dropped 200 S&P points in a heartbeat. Double bottomed again in March, turned up in, in May, went all the way back up, just about unchanged on the year, beating our chest on the price charts, it is. Mm-hmm. And that was a baloney rally as well. You rolled over by June, July, you were back at the lows. So while I don't expect this rally to evaporate immediately, 
I tend to expect it to run out of gas in this area, arm wrestle its way back down, and by the end of the year, you'll probably be, again, back into a weak stance where even a price chart observer will say, gee, it looks weak. Uh, Um, It's happened uh, before, in other words. Yeah, well, again, it's your momentum work, I think, that uh, sets you apart. Uh, to a great extent, in my mind, from many of the other analysts. I don't know of anyone else who does it quite like you, and uh, I, I really uh, appreciate your work. You, you said uh, recently, I think maybe it was in your weekend missive, uh, and I quote, the resurrection of commodities and commodity-related stocks is not an if, from our perspective, only an issue of when in the next quarter the technical evidence will show itself. I, I know not uh, all commodities, uh, no, that's the end of your quote. What I want to say to you is that I don't, I know that not all commodities are going to move together. You've made that very clear. You can't just take, you know, like oil maybe is uh, going to take longer or copper maybe is starting to move. But uh, what are your, what are your thoughts generally speaking? You, you think we've seen the bottom for most of these commodities now? I think for most of them, yes. For oil, it's a coin toss whether you again make a new low. You made a new low uh, two months ago, taking out the March low, which was just above $42. We dropped to just below 38 and immediately shot back up to 50 Right now we're about 43 44 um, Whether we'll go down and take out that 37.75 low we made two months ago, I don't know. I think it's really a short-term trader's market right now in the oil market. I think from a broad perspective, stand back and look at the big picture. It's a basing process. Sometimes basing processes, you eke out a new low here or there. Uh, But the collapse phase is over. I mean, Mm -hmm. people who are chasing oil now on the short side – I'll make you a bet. They weren't chasing it last summer when they should have, when it was in the mm-hmm. mid-90s, headed down. Now, in the 40s, they want to get bearish and short. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think oil is, a, to some extent, a, 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 it's an outlier, it's a laggard, and it keeps the tenor and tone of the commodity argument depressed. Because mm-hmm. if oil's weak, that must mean all commodities are. Well, take a look at a sugar chart. Mm-hmm. Or take a look at the stability in the corn market, uh, you know, or, or look at gold. Uh, you know, all these things are poised with very little further nudging to, to, to start moving up nicely. Even the cattle market, which was a late bloomer on the downside, collapsed so fully and has rebounded so sharply that I think it saw its lows. It finally joined in the commodity bear market, and, but I think it's already seen its low and had it in a, it's now stabilized well off that low. So I think oil is really a deceptive market to watch because it, it, so many people put so much emphasis on it as, as if it is uh, indicative of all commodities, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of uh, gold, uh, one technical analyst on a show that I was on, I was on with him yesterday, uh, he was calling for a possible decline uh, to 600 in gold. W- what are the chances of that uh, well, in the next six months good. or so? Um, I... I continue to hold the view that I've held for the last couple of years, and, and, and that is ever since the June 2013 collapse, it was a crash. Gold mm-hmm. went from the 1600s, the next thing you knew it was 1178. Mm-hmm. It did it in a matter of you know, a few months. That's uh-huh. a crash. That's the way markets, uh, either they start that way, which gold did not. Gold peaked uh, 1900, and it spent the next year or so going sideways to slightly down. It wasn't until later, a year and a half or so after the top, that it actually crashed. Since then... We've had two new probes to a new low, and each is like 2% below the prior low. And right now, gold is trading where? About one-half of 1% below the low of June 2013. 
Uh-huh. It's now it's October of 2015. It's two years and several months later, and we're a half percent lower than we were two years ago. Uh, yeah. You know, th- put that in. That's what you need to think about. Uh, what's going on? Somebody's buying it. Okay. Now again, we're measuring it against the dollar, and the dollar has been firm. So that's the weakest view you're going to see of gold. If you yeah. measure it against the euro, the yen, you'd have a different picture. Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm still uh, positive on gold. Uh, my big numbers, final breakout numbers, were in the low 1200s, uh, between 1203 and 1209, especially a monthly mm-hmm. close. Realized that the recent high was 1191.70 a few weeks yeah. ago. So I'm not talking a lot. Uh, and I, I think that gold is just quietly poised below these levels, and when it's right, it's going to strike. Well, and, and I silver, guess you Silver's in full agreement with that, by the way. It is, and I, I think you're you're of the opinion when these both these markets turn around to the upside, we're probably looking for a bigger gain in silver than in gold. Yeah, I, I think so, and I think a bigger mm-hmm. gain in the gold miners than gold as well. Uh huh. Um, all right, so that's um, that's music to our ears. We, of course, uh, those of us on the long side. Of course, I guess uh, your view uh, is that. You are now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are now of the opinion that you would be 75% of the total amount of gold allocation you would have in a bull market. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you're, and and once you get over that 12, low 1,200 numbers, you would be looking to, to go 100% of the amount you would allocate yeah. to gold, whatever that amount yeah, whatever is. Whatever an investor would like to have put into gold two years ago to build a position, uh, I think you should have started after the June 13 crash with 25%, and I've since added two others. One's crossing back above 1,100, and the other one's back above 1,150. That leaves me the one quarter left of, of additional to the position. Now, that, whether you're buying gold miners or you're, you're using futures or whatever, but in a basing process, it's best not to be super aggressive and, and highly leveraged. If you are, you can get whipped around pretty good. Yeah. Because the bases are not easy. They're not clean. They're up and down. That's what a base mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's only once you've broken through the final hurdle, like at the Kentucky Derby, you know, when the gates open, whoosh, that's <laughs> when you, you maybe you put some emphasis on leverage. But right now, I think the better approach to gold is, you know, 75% long, unleveraged. And if you want to get leveraged, then once we cross that last hurdle, then maybe consider it. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking, oh. for, you know, for the inv- investor who, for instance, buying gold coins or something, you know. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely. Well, point well taken. Well, uh, the dollar uh, index is another thing you commented on this weekend. Uh, how is that looking? Because it has so much to do, as you just uh, sort of noted, relative situation. to the way we view gold. Yeah, it's confusing in that the dollar index really is not revealing a lot of, of the truth that's out there in the Forex markets. For instance, I think the yen is at a, at a potent bottoming process and is not far from a breakout. Now, the yen is about 13% of the dollar index. The dollar index is really, it's 56 or 57% is the euro. Right. So when you look at the, quote, dollar index, as opposed to the dollar versus a specific currency, you're really dealing with the inverse of the euro, uh, which means you're going against Draghi, because Draghi wants that euro down, and he yeah. knows how to play the game. Yeah. Uh, so the question is whether the Fed, now that they're out of ammo in terms of you know yields, unless they want to go negative yields, and they've been talking about that. Uh, yes, at least they one are. of the Fed spokesmen. That and also the mention of the dollar in the recent two two months worth of minutes from the Fed has been an incredible increase in the mention of the dollar as a factor mm-hmm. compared to prior minutes over the past few years. So they're yeah. seeing the dollar now as as a threat because it is, in their view, hurt our industrial markets, our industrial companies. Uh, 
and therefore maybe they need to play the currency game, which the Japanese and the Europeans have been doing. And of course, I think about the only tool the Fed has to do to uh, get involved in that game is to try to compete with Draghi. Draghi's yeah. talking negative rates. Now, uh, maybe we want to do that. Uh, <laughs> in which case, uh, you know, that you could you could get some weakness in the dollar index because of its relation to the euro. But forgetting the euro issue, when you look just at the yen, I watch yen futures. Uh, they're, they're a rat's hair away from a major monthly close that could break them out to the upside. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and I'm seeing some positive things out of the Canadian dollar, for example, which is commodity-related. Mm-hmm. So I think looking at the dollar index as your barometer is to some extent a mistaken, <clears throat> a mistaken stance. Sure. So I, I guess uh, how does the euro look then uh, to you relative to the dollar? Uh, Draghi's playing this game, and uh, mm-hmm. the big question the is: what? If it can muster its strength up again, it's now one ten, one eleven area, going up to one fifteen to one twenty. Mm-hmm. That's about as far as I can see it going. But I can mm-hmm. I can see that much. Now we got one seventeen back a few months ago when the uh, S and P collapsed. Mm-hmm. The euro spiked to one seventeen and quickly backed off. So that's not un- that's not uncharted territory. So going back there again, I could see it in a more slow, methodical manner, and even maybe going to 120, where I think formidable resistance would occur. But from from the current levels, that would inflict quite a bit of pain on the dollar index, right. especially if that were accompanied by uh, strength in the yen. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. it's uh, about the well, worst I could see. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, the dollar index has been hovering. The low for the year has been about 93 and just below. The high was just above 100. And we're now sort of in the middle of that range. I think if you go back to 93 one more time, you're not going to hold it. Actually, the low is like 92.80 something. But if you get back to 93, and we got to 93.80 something a few weeks ago, if you go back to 93 again, I think they can get it into the, into the mid to upper 80s from the dollar index. And that would be, that would be a shock uh, for a lot of Forex people who don't mm-hmm. think the dollar could get that weak. Um, and I, I suspect if you ever saw the dollar do that, you could then circle the high at 100 that we made in March mm-hmm. and say that was it. That mm-hmm. was the high of this dollar rally. Oh. Well, it's all all very interesting, and uh, I, I could see where, you know, some if, if you're right and we're about ready to see some strength in some of the commodities where that could also uh, play a role in, in the overall currencies. And interestingly enough, uh, Michael, thanks for bringing us up this notion of negative interest rates because uh, we do have to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, that's going to be one of the topics we talked to John Rubino about, uh, Michael, because I think it makes, uh, you know, clearly there's some talk about it, and some countries are doing it, and it just doesn't make any sense uh, to me as an old-timer. I don't know about you. No, it makes no sense to me, but then, you know, it's been Twilight Zone now for several years, so yes. <laughs> we're still in the Twilight Zone. Enjoy. Yes, we are in the Twilight Zone, I guess, And uh, I, but it hurts some people. It helps some, and it hurts others, and, and what we should do is just, I think, just have free markets and, and let the markets and let the people decide collectively what they want to do rather than having mm-hmm. a few uh, guys in the Politburo dictate our lives but anyway i know you and i are in agreement on that well thank you michael very much again for being with us always always great to hear your your views on these things they're views that are based on a lot of good hard work that you do and work that is proprietary in nature so people should check out michael's work at ms at olivermsa.com olivermsa.com thanks michael and we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future to be on your show jay thank you thank you so much all right folks well we're going to go to commercial break now but when we come back john Robina will be with me to talk about how in the world can we 
savers survive in a negative interest rate world. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino. Uh, John has uh, been on this show a number of times in the past, and uh, uh, always welcome to have him. Uh, he uh, runs an excellent website, uh, a blog uh, that I would encourage you to, uh, to visit uh, and partake of, of the many good articles that are there, some of which are John's and some of which belong to other people, but uh, he, he shares the wealth, uh, and we're very pleased to have him with us again. Thanks for joining us today, John. Hey, Jay. Good to be back. Now, um, it's dollarcollapse.com, isn't it, where people can go to catch up with your work? It is, yeah. And it, dollarcollapse.com. Uh, yeah, and it's a site that covers most of what we're going to talk about today on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and we want to start out, Michael Oliver, uh, who we had on, was just talking about uh, some of the currencies, the dollar and so forth, and he thought a very real prospect here that the Fed may start to look towards zero or negative, or we have zero interest rates essentially, but negative interest rates. It just seems so insane to me, um, John, I, I, I just incomprehensive, incomprehensible to me uh, that we could be willingly going into negative interest rates. You wrote uh, on an October 19th blog, an, an article there, uh, negative interest rates are here, and you noted not so long ago a bank was by definition a business that took deposits from customers and then 
lent them out and made money from those loans. But that's not how it's working, at least for the larger banks today. In fact, as you noted, uh, at least some of these big banks are telling large American corporations that they don't really want their money anymore. They don't they don't want their deposits. And how do you explain the, these actions from big banks? Why are they doing that? Well, a couple of things have happened with big banks in the last few decades. One is that um, we removed the the regular regulatory impediments to these guys growing into basically hedge funds. Yeah. So they're they're first of all they're huge, and second of all they can make more money now trading with each other. You know, they can write derivatives and trade currencies and manipulate various markets and make a lot more money than in boring old-style banking businesses like taking deposits and then lending the money out. The other thing is that um, post-2008-2009 crisis, the government has been shoveling newly created dollars onto the balance sheets of these big banks. And that's left these guys with really more ready cash than they know what to do with. So they're just redepositing that money with the Fed, earning a little tiny interest, but totally risk-free and and with very little paperwork, presumably. And so that to them is more attractive than taking deposits and having to make sure tellers are being nice and heating and cooling the bank buildings. You know, actual banking involves a lot of work. Yeah. And depositing your money at the Fed and and, uh, booking a small steady, risk-free interest stream requires almost no work. And yeah. the, the third factor now in, uh, in big banks souring on big corporate deposits is that the, uh, the regulators now treat large corporate deposits kind of as hot money, you know, something that can flow back out again as easily as it flowed in. Mm-hmm. And so they want the big banks to hold a lot of reserves, that is risk-free liquid assets, against those deposits, which makes the deposits less attractive for big banks. So um, add it all up, and there's no reason for J.P. Morgan Chase to go out and solicit um, deposits from big corporate customers because it doesn't do them any good. They don't make any money off of it, and it's a hassle. So, so they're charging fees now for companies that want to deposit money. And that's the first in- in- instance of a effectively negative interest rate in the U.S. because... In effect, they're charging negative interest if they charge a fee on a deposit. Sure. And, and so this is where it begins, but there's no doubt, or almost no doubt, that it spreads to the rest of the banking system in the next couple of years. Because the, the U.S. is really alone in the world in talking about raising interest rates. Everybody else is cutting interest rates. And in some cases, to um, negative levels, a a big chunk of the European bond market now trades with negative yields. And a lot of European bank accounts now charge you for the privilege of holding on to your money. And so the fact that those economies are doing that, they have incredibly low interest rates and they're still not growing. You know, they're still drifting downward into uh, um, recession in a lot of places means that they're going to have to step it up and go to even more extreme policies to keep that drift downward to zero growth from turning into a plunge into dramatically negative deflationary growth. You know, there's a real risk of um, the amount of debt that we've taken on causing a a new 1930s-style depression. And these guys know that, so they're leaning against it with every monetary tool they have and so far, it hasn't worked. That's what's really scary, that, uh, that we've created all this new currency, we've cut interest rates to record low levels, and it hasn't 
produce a rip-roaring inflationary boom like it would have any other time in uh, post-depression history. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at um, new strategies from here and all they've really got is more of the same so well if zero interest rates didn't work let's try negative two percent interest and if uh, a budget deficit of seven or eight percent of gdp didn't work let's go to 10 or 12 percent and that's what we're going to see going forward it's uh, completely uncharted territory and fascinating from a theoretical standpoint but from ter- terrifying from every other standpoint well i agree with you there you know it's i mean we've had inflation of course john a lot of it in the financial markets and the asset markets and the housing prices in some markets of course uh but but it, it's not getting out to the real economy is that is that why so these banks are essentially operating a casino they're playing in a in a casino world where they can move money around real fast place their bets and to heck with long-term growth, to heck with the, you know, long-term, stable, boring returns. Let's, let's make as much money as fast as we can. And who cares about the real economy? Is that what's going on? Um, largely, yeah. Um, you know, for a bank to lend money to some Main Street business where growth is minimal and, and the, the risk of failure is very high um, is not nearly as attractive as having your trading desk place a bet and then having another part of your trading desk move the market in the direction of that bet and then booking a big profit that way. You know, you, uh, For the last couple of years, we've seen big banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase report whole months where their trading desks made money every single day. Yeah. And you can't do that in the real world in a competitive market. You can only do that if you're manipulating the market. If you're well, manipulating the market. One, one thing that's happening lately, though, Jay, is that that has changed. The big banks can't make money uh, as consistently with their prop trading desks as they used to be able to. And the reason for that is that we're, we're hitting a really volatile stretch where the, the global financial system is so gorged on leverage and uh, so unsure about what government policy is going to be going forward that you get these wild swings out there that are unmanageable, even for the big banks. And so they're having to actually trade based on their own opinions about what's going to happen in the world rather than their own manipulation of the world. And it's not working for them. The big banks are not making nearly as much money now as they did last year and the year before. And that's a a new and different development. John, I have to wonder to a certain extent also, uh, you know, a lot of these countries are trying to reduce their, uh, you know, cheapen their currency debase their currency in essence to try to get some export advantages is that something that could spiral out of control as well and could take us into uh you know into a a competitive devaluation scenario that i mean uh, is that something even that perhaps the federal reserve is is concerned about maybe not wanting to raise interest rates because of what it might do the dollar michael oliver was was just saying that uh, more than he's heard in a long time, the Fed seems to be focused on the dollar. I can remember the Greenspan days when Greenspan and Bernanke, too, would say, well, we don't comment on the dollar. But apparently the Fed is now. Is this, is this another potential threat to, uh, to negative interest rates as well? Because countries are going to have to keep pushing their, cheapening their currency. Oh, yeah, because in effect, with the dollar going up while most other currencies are going down relative to the dollar, that means we're losing the currency war. 
when, when you think of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. as the dollar goes up, it makes it harder for U.S. companies to sell stuff that they price in dollars to the rest of the world. So um, our export sector and our multinationals in general, every time they report um, quarterly earnings, they say, oh, um, it wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be because of the strong dollar. You know, And that's, that's the thing that's holding back, uh, or one of the things that's holding back um, growth in corporate sales and profits. And if corporations aren't making more and more money year after year, then how do you justify rising share prices? You know, a, a, a share of stock is just a share of ownership in a company. But if the company's making less and less money, then the price of that stock should go down. And so the chain reaction that the Fed is terrified of is a rising dollar because they raise interest rates or because they refrain from cutting interest rates um, that hurts corporate profits, that in turn sends the stock market into a bear market, and which finally sets off some kind of a, um, a financial chain reaction around the world that the central banks can't control. You know, we're so leveraged and so fragile that we might not be able to handle a garden variety bear market. You know, 20% drop in, in the S&P 500, for instance, mm-hmm. might be a systemically risky event. <laughs> you know, that's the yeah. kind of thing that happens every five years and we get past it. But it, it might not be the case that we can get past the next one of these. So the, the Fed is actively watching all of this and they're, they're completely paralyzed. because. Well, I wonder to what extent they have control of it, John, because we're seeing... Um, a lot of weakness in the equity markets, except for some of the big names in the NASDAQ and a few of the, you know, the, the highly, the, those names that have a huge amount of, of weight attached to the indexes uh, are, you know, we think of Google and, I don't know, Amazon and some of those that have, maybe Facebook and some of them that have done extremely well recently. And just a handful of those stocks can pull up the whole index. But it seems to me that the market is not nearly as good as it appears to be on the surface. Well, yeah, big tech is an interesting story because um, when a technology's time comes, it really doesn't matter what the overall economy is like. Um, that technology is going to grow. For instance, during the Great Depression, when most people couldn't buy much of anything beyond food, car sales still boomed because it was the auto industry's time. You know, they had the hottest new technology in the world, mm-hmm. and enough people wanted it to allow them to grow dramatically. And the same thing is true of um, smartphones for Apple or mm-hmm. cloud computing for Amazon or artificial intelligence for Google. You know, these things um, are going to be the dominant technologies of the coming decade, and the best makers of those technologies are going to grow like crazy. And that has nothing to do with the overall economy. Um, it's, it's that these technologies have just arrived and they've got to have their early run. Um, but as you said, under the surface, the market is um, seeing a lot more turmoil than you would think just by looking at the, um, the indices. You know? mm-hmm. And you, you've got um, companies just tanking right and left now. You know, short sellers are having a ball out there. Our, friend, our friends uh, Bill Lagner and, and Kevin Duffy over at Bearing mm-hmm. Asset Management have this long list of shorts that are, that are down 20 or 30 or 40% in just the last few months where they're just raking it in. Uh, but a lot of other hedge funds that are long these, these um, formerly hot names like IBM and Walmart and, and that uh, the drug company whose name is escaping me right now but uh, has really tanked lately, mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are getting crushed. 
and yeah. you're, you're seeing big hedge funds close and and other hedge funds that um, uh, like uh, David Einhorn's and, and Bill Ackman's funds, which very seldom have down years, having big down years. And that's a sign that under the surface, the stock market is not healthy. And it's also kind of reminiscent of 1999. Remember when the, the global economy was supported by the U.S. stock market and the U.S. stock market was supported by about 20 big tech yeah, companies? That, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then when they went down, everything fell apart. Well, we're kind of back there again. Yeah, where, right. um, it would seem so. And even in, in this massive growth for big IT, uh, there has to be some limit. John, to that growth, I, I would imagine. So, you know, how much of that future growth is discounted in these share prices? I have no idea because I don't follow the market that closely. But uh, in any event, you know, the, the conclusion of this article that you had posted on negative interest rates, uh, uh, it, it concluded with the following comment. It says, with the global economy slowing dramatically, led by plunging corporate profits, U.S. interest rates will have to fall in 2016. And cash will have to be marginalized or made obsolete in order to get rates down to where they have a stimulative effect. Well, I'm wondering to what extent do lower rates have a stimulative effect? Because as you pointed out, it doesn't seem to be getting the money into the economy. It doesn't really seem to be doing much of anything. If anything, uh, I see a, a slowing global economy in light of all this new money that's created by all these different central banks around the world. Uh, so, so that's one thing. Maybe comment on that. And then also, what are we consumers to do, especially if we get negative interest rates? What, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to protect ourselves and protect our wealth? I mean, already, because interest rates have been pushed way below any kind of equilibrium by the manipulators at the Fed, you know, it's a redistribution of wealth from the people that save and are thrifty to the people that are reckless spenders. But but first of first of all, what do you think? The I mean, is continually decreasing interest rates going to stimulate the economy? I mean, it doesn't seem to have been very effective. Now, agreed, if interest rates were to rise suddenly, it would probably throw us over the abyss. But but what are your thoughts on that? Will will continually declining interest rates lead to economic growth globally? Well, that, that's a big debate going on in in the economics profession right now, or at least the mainstream part of the economics mm-hmm. profession, where you've got some Keynesians who say, well, you know, we just haven't gone far enough yet. Yeah, yeah we, right. if we lower interest rates to 2 or 3%, negative 2 or 3%, then it will stimulate growth. It's just, yeah. um, you know, Keynesian standard theory taking to, taken to a, a further logical extreme. Now, and you've got some other guys saying, well... Obviously, that hasn't worked so far because that money is getting um, clogged up in the banking system. You know, there, yeah. there's not um, new cash being turned into new loans the way normally it is. So, so let's go a different route. Let's have governments run huge <laughs> deficits, spend that money on infrastructure, or rebate it through tax cuts directly to people. So we have right. kind of a, a QE for the people thing. Yeah. And then they'll spend it and we'll get growth. Now, Either one of those things, to you and me, Jay, it sounds like a catastrophe. In, yeah, in the it, sure does. it sure does. <laughs> but, yeah, because uh, lost on this, lost on this uh, discussion from the Keynesians is the notion of malinvestment and and uh, the need to have savings and also to have price discovery for capital, which isn't allowed to happen with the Keynesian markets. And how can you have capitalism if capital is not allowed to be priced? 
Yeah, that, that's exactly the problem that we're looking at now is that, uh, yeah, we're directing lots of new money out into the system, but the, uh, the entrepreneurs and the executives who would normally put that money to work um, using price signals in their market um, find, are finding out that the price signals don't work anymore. So they, they're kind of flying blind. And so you're seeing all kinds of stuff happen out there. Like China is the best example of this, where they directed $15 trillion into an infrastructure build out in the last five years. Uh, Politically, where um, local politicians would decide, hey, I want a new shopping mall over here and a new airport over there. And, And so not surprisingly, a lot of those things are empty now. And they're not generating the cash flow necessary to pay off the debt. So China's in kind of a, a debt crisis here. And so the, um, the QE for the people, negative interest rate world approach would end up with a, an entire global economy in that same boat, I think. Yeah. And That's- so, yeah, it, it wouldn't work. But it might work for like a year or two where it pumps up the financial markets a little more. And that would buy time, but only to borrow more money and, and leverage ourselves even more highly so it wouldn't work in the long run right so to the extent that average people can can put some money in the market but you know the problem is john if we get some sort of a of a you know of a sudden turn to the downside then you know people are caught again uh losing tons of money in the in in the equity market so i i guess the question is what are consumers to do in this environment what are we to do given given the cards that were dealt here with these keynesian economists messing things up so drastically well, the government is saying, stop saving and start borrowing and spending. Right. right? Because we'll, we'll, we'll lend you money at next to nothing, and we won't pay you anything for your savings. So go out there, buy that new car, buy that new house, you know, buy stocks on margin. And uh, that's almost certainly really, really bad advice. Almost any time, but now more than ever, because we're so close to the end of a long cycle. Uh, and, and for someone who doesn't want to do that, there aren't a whole lot of really good options because you, you put your money in the bank and, and it just sits there and, and pretty soon it's going to be um, penalized for being in the bank. They'll take your money mm-hmm. away. You invest in the stock market, you take excessive risks uh, that, that might blow up on you with your retirement savings. And, um, you know, I, I've been saying for years that precious metals is the place to go to hide out. And for the last few years, it hasn't really worked. So I'm reluctant to tell people um, to jump into gold and silver right now. But there, there will come a time when there's an entry point when looking back on it, you'll say, that's where I should have jumped in. You know, I should have mortgaged my house and bought gold and silver. And um, I don't know when that time is. I don't know what. Yeah. The well, maybe is. not mortgage your house, but you know, we had uh, Roy Sabag of, of Gold Money, BitGold uh, platform uh, of the you know with the BitGold platform on this show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, your good friend James Turk, of course, is joined with Roy Sabag. What are your thoughts about uh, about Gold Money, BitGold, uh, and that that uh, combined effort there? Well, I think it's a very interesting concept, uh, but I'm, I'm also not qualified to speak to the technical aspects of setting up a gold-based currency. Uh-huh. Um, I, I would love to see how this plays out in the next few years and, and see how it's accepted in the marketplace and see how they handle rising growth technically and, and see how governments respond mm-hmm. to this concept re- in terms of regulations. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, right now they're... they're Okay, well, we lost John. Um, unfortunately, we're just about out of time uh, in any event. Um, 
Uh, sorry about that, folks, but uh, maybe we'll get John and talk to him and get some uh, some feedback from John that I can pass along to you next week because I know he is a good friend of James Turk and he has given a lot of thought to uh, BitGold and gold money. And uh, so that is a, a PayPal sort of a system, uh, but using gold rather than currency. So very interesting concept and, and one that I'm very bullish on, both uh, from an equity point of view, owning the stock, and also as an uh, as an investor. What we do, uh, that is just basically about all the time we have. Uh, next week, Richard Mayberry will be my guest, and um, uh, he's going to talk about the changes that are going on in the Middle East as Russia seems to be gaining some influence, a lot of influence there at the expense of the United States. The United States uh, seemingly to move uh, into China, looking to uh, try to stop China, to isolate China, uh, to emasculate China through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So these are some issues we want to talk to uh, to Richard Mayberry about next week. Also, I do expect to have Sean Wallace with me. He's the CEO of RN uh, Resources to talk about that company's development as well. So I do want to thank you for listening and uh, also want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.